0: morning again. Thanks again so much for having me. My wife Sally uh, sends her love um, there at church at Greenacre this morning, as I said. I love visiting churches. Um, actually, my a distant relative of mine, I think, uh, commissioned the first Wesleyan chapel in Australia in Wilberforce, not far from here. I don't know what direction. Someone can point that way. Um, he uh, was... Um, he, he, he went pretty heavy into the drink, was, uh, got drunk one night and um, staggered outside and got bitten by a snake. and he prayed that if uh, God saved him, he was a terrible atheist before that. He prayed that if God saved him from this snake bite, um, he would build a chapel. and he survived and he built a chapel. Um, There's still up there in a bigger church uh, nearby. I love visiting churches. I took a friend of mine, Muhammad, who's a young Muslim guy, still a Muslim, not a believer to a church not far from where we live a couple of years ago, last year, um, because he wanted to just see what a church was like. been reading the Bible with him for a while. He's, uh, he loves Jesus, actually. He loves the Gospel. His favourite book of the Bible is the Gospel of John. And you can tell when a Muslim has a favourite book of the Bible that they've invested some time in it. He's Pakistani background. His parents were born overseas, but he's a real Lakemba boy. Um, grew up in Kemble, was born in Australia, grew up there. Wanted to go to a church, so I took him to a local church near us. And he had a pretty mixed experience, if I'm, if I'm honest. We went to the evening congregation, um, and he was a bit taken aback by it. One thing that he found difficult was that there was a welcomer, one of the young women in the congregation, came straight up to us afterwards and started kind of peppering him with questions. Both of us, but mainly him, I think, because he just looked a bit different, um, which was quite... Uh, was a little bit overwhelming. I realised the way that I often welcome people to church is by asking them question after question. I've stopped doing that. Now I make sure that I say, welcome to church first, and maybe ask a couple of gentle questions. She was wearing kind of tight-fitting clothes, nothing I don't think that you or I would consider inappropriate, but for him it was not okay, he felt, because he thought he was in a sacred space. I think there was a Bible on the floor, which was a massive problem for him. Just a whole bunch of things made the experience really very difficult for him as someone who's actually seeking Jesus. Most of us wouldn't have sort of batted an eyelid at any of those things, I don't think. Um, But perhaps that's because that's a particular way of thinking about a church gathering that we're used to and that we're comfortable with. He's not a believer yet, but by God's grace when he comes to faith in Christ, what's it going to look like for him to meet with other believers? Is he just going to have to deal with all of that stuff and all the other stuff that he didn't tell me about? Or is there another way that it could actually look for him to gather with the people of God in fellowship? It's a really key part of our ministry, my ministry with our team, to actually be asking these questions. Questions like, what even is church anyway? What makes a gathering of Christian people church? And I think, as Rick said, you'll be examining exactly that kind of question in the next topical series. Can you have a church in a home? And Maybe you'd sort of say, well, yeah, of course you can. It's a home church or something. But is it a real church or does it need to be connected to something bigger that's in a building like this? Does there need to be an ordained minister there to make it church? What about how we pray? Should we close our eyes when we pray? I close my eyes when I pray, usually. Muslims don't when they pray in the way that they do it. I don't think those are authentic prayers. But when they come to faith in Jesus, do they need to start closing their eyes when they pray? Uh, people in the Bible pray in all kinds of different ways. Um, Should we kneel when we pray? Maybe we should. I don't know. Maybe we should kneel when we pray more often than we do. Is it better to have people who are just of the same ethnic background together? What kind of clothes should Christians wear? Should women who've come from Muslim background who've grown up wearing a scarf, should they not wear that anymore because now they're Christians and they're free in Christ? Or is it okay if they do? And can a Muslim even become a Christian? I mean, how does that that even happen? And what does that involve for a Muslim person to become a Christian? Do they need to become like you and me? Or is there a different way of being a follower of the Lord Jesus? I haven't figured out all the answers to all of those questions yet, but it's a big part of our ministry, prayerfully thinking them through. And one of the reasons that I've chosen this passage from Acts this morning is because it marks a big movement, something new and something quite challenging happens in the history of salvation in this passage in Acts 11. And I think one of the lessons from it is that God wants us to be ready for when he's going to do something different than what we're used to and be able to recognise it for what it really is. So um, I'm hoping the verses will come up on the screen again as we go through, or you might like to keep the Bible open. Um, verse 19 says this. Now those who'd been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. If you know the book of Acts at all, in chapter 6, Stephen um, uh, Um, a follower of Jesus and a deacon in the church, is stoned to death. Persecution breaks out, the Christians spread out. And they go to Phoenicia, which is Lebanon. They go to Cyprus in the Mediterranean, that island, and they go to Antioch, up further north in what we call Turkey, southern Turkey. It was a big city, Antioch, um, cosmopolitan city. Half a million people lived there. No one lives there now. It's all buried. It hasn't been excavated properly. It's disappeared. But after Rome and Corinth, it was probably the third city of the empire. Very significant place. And the the Christians, as they went there, or the believers in the way, as it's called, at that time in Acts, they went there and started preaching the gospel, but only to Jews. Now, why did they only preach the gospel to Jews? Well, because they were all Jews, and because Jesus was a Jew, and because Jesus died and rose from the dead in fulfilment of the Jewish scriptures in the Jewish capital. All of his followers, with a couple of tiny exceptions we read about, like Philip the Ethiopian uh, and Cornelius, were all Jews. And so, of course, they went to the Jews. They would have gone to the synagogue and asked for the addresses of the People in the Jewish people in Antioch and visited them in their homes, gathered with them in places where Jewish people gathered and preached the gospel to them. But in verse 20, something new happens. Verse 20, some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. Something new happens. New missionaries come. Now they're still Jews, these new missionaries. They've come from Cyprus, they've come from Cyrene, think kind of Libya, North Africa. But they do something new, not just the old pattern. They actually start preaching the gospel to Gentiles, to non-Jews in this city of Antioch who were the majority of the population of the city. Now this is huge and actually shocking. It doesn't feel particularly shocking, does it? It doesn't feel shocking to me. I'm a Gentile. Of course, the gospel's for me, right? I'm the centre of my own universe. Maybe you feel the same way. If you're a Gentile, maybe you think, of course, the gospel's for Gentiles. But actually, this is massive. That really, for the first time, the news of the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, the King of the Jews, is being preached to non-Jews as good news for them that he is actually the Lord over them and that he can be their saviour if they put their trust in him. So these missionaries, we don't know their names, who came to preach the gospel and started doing it among the the Gentiles, they are heroes because they they were doing something that was not normal but was very much in line with the heart of Almighty God and his plans for the nation's. We can see, can't we, how it's been unfolding all the way through the scriptures and come to full fruit in Jesus, that he would be the saviour of the world. But think about the insight that these people had and the boldness to actually go and do it. So what happens? Verse 21. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. The new missionaries preached the gospel and a new church forms, lots of people start coming to faith in Jesus. And there were Gentiles in this church. It was a mixed church, Jews and Gentiles, like a number of the other churches we read about in the New Testament. And this is just what Jesus said would happen, isn't it? That the apostles would be his messengers in Jerusalem and Judea and beyond and beyond and beyond to the ends of the earth, to all nations. Verse Verse 22. News of this new church reached the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. So news gets down to Jerusalem where the church started and the, the big boys of the Jerusalem church are down there, Peter, James, John, those others, the originals. And they think, well, what on earth is going up on up there in Antioch? So they send Barnabas. He's a, he's a heavy hitter himself. And he goes up to um, do a bit of investigation. And what does he see? When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad. He sees it for what it is. He recognises that this is actually the work of God, this, this weird thing going on with the Gentiles. I mean, we kind of knew this would happen, uh, but now it's really happening, and it's God at work. He's doing this great thing. His judgement is right, Barnabas' judgement. We're told he's a, he's a good man. No one else in Acts is called a good man. God says, yep, Um, this man Barnabas has given a good report. He has correctly identified what's going on in Antioch as the work of the grace of God. This was Christ-centered evangelism that led to a Christ-centered church. It's the real thing. And so he goes back and reports in Jerusalem. I do a fair bit of thinking about evangelism in my ministry because it's a big part of what we do a great privilege to do that. And I do a lot of thinking about church. Um, we're not just interested in getting Muslim people kind of through the door and then abandon them. Like I said before, they're babies and they need a family. They need to be adopted into a local family just as they've been adopted into the universal family of Christ with God as their father. Evangelism and church. One of the things I've noticed in our churches, perhaps for a while, is that though there's a, I guess, a reputation among Sydney Anglicans for evangelism, um, somehow um, kind of the heat's come off that. And instead of people saying, instead of encouraging one to share our faith with other people who don't know the gospel, it seems like a lot of weight now goes to bring your friends to church. That's what I've got to do. I've got to bring people to church And then the experts can preach the gospel to them. That's where the evangelism is going to happen. Now, I think inviting your friends to church is a fantastic thing to do. I think it's great. And I'm sure some of you can testify that the invitation into this community or into some other Christian gathering was instrumental in your journey in, in faith. I can certainly testify to that as well. It was a weekend away when I was in year nine. Invitations are so great. Invitation to go down the pool together, invitation to a barbecue, invitation to church, invitation to whatever. Let's just be like, um, you know, unstoppable inviters of people. But actually, evangelism, sharing the gospel of the Lord Jesus with people who don't believe, is not primarily something that happens in church. It's something that happens outside the church. And churches form as a result of that evangelism. And so while the gospel will be preached here clearly and faithfully, it's wonderful that it is. We just had the Lord's Supper together, and that is as good an explanation of the gospel as there is, as we act that out together. Actually, this gathering, though, is for us. It's for believers. And there are plenty of people, Muslim background, or even people from Anglo-Aussie background for whom coming to church is not as easy as it is for us, because this is our place. And if that's the only place that they can hear the gospel, then they're not going to hear the gospel. So we need to spend time with people outside, and we need to open our minds, I think, and our hearts, and this is my prayer for myself as much as anyone else, uh, to the opportunities and the need for people to hear the gospel outside of the four walls of our church building or our church community. I really um, think inviting is very important. I just want to say that again. I think it's a wonderful thing. And the gospel needs to be going round and round in here because we actually evangelise each other according to the New Testament. Um, but we need to think about those people for whom coming to church is a, is a difficult proposition, like Muhammad, who I mentioned before. We need to have our minds open and a bit like the people who were seeing what was going on here, we need to be ready to see when God is actually doing his work in a way that perhaps we didn't expect or maybe even that we're not initially comfortable with. Uh, One of the photos that came up before um, when I was up the front with Rick was a photo of a a group of uh, about 20 people. We meet once a month. I think I mentioned them. We had a gathering yesterday, most of them from Muslim background from different countries, 10 different countries I think we had um, last time, Uh, but all trusting in Jesus. And I'm really thankful for the work that God's done in their lives and for the way that actually we are connected to one another really deeply. We lean on each other. We... um, share one another's burdens, we have um, really good relationships in Christ Jesus and for many of them that is church. And we have small groups that meet throughout the week as well but that monthly gathering is a bigger group um, that functions as the fellowship of believers for those people. But it looks different to what I grew up with um, and, and yet it's a real work of God and I'm very thankful for it. What I think I'm seeing by God's grace is God at work, like what Barnabas saw. So what does he do? What does Barnabas do to get back to the text? He goes, in verse 25, he goes to Tarsus, also in Turkey, where Saul is from. And he gets Saul, who becomes Paul later on, and he brings him back to Antioch to invest in what's going on there. For a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. New missionaries, a new church forms. They invest there and it grows until they actually get a new reputation. They got a name for the first time, these people, Christians. Now, why did they need a new name? Well, they needed a new name because they weren't just weird Jews. Jews. There was the Jewish people, and then there were these people who followed Jesus as Messiah who were kind of a bit strange, but they're still Jews. But now you've got this mixed bag of people, people from pagan background and and some Jews in there as well. And What are we going to call this? But they get a reputation as a group, and they're called Christians, which means little Christs. It's quite a good name, isn't it? I love it. That's that's, that's, that's us, little Christs. being the light of the world to the people around us. So, if you're going to get stuck with a label, and it seems like this label was given to them rather than them having chosen it, that's a pretty good one to get. You might be interested to in know that among Muslims, there are Muslim people who follow Jesus fully, just like you and I, but who don't use the word Christian to describe themselves. Um, one of the young guys I train is uh, from Saudi background. Um, wonderful young guy in his mid-twenties, lots of energy for the Lord. Um, when he first told his family that he was a Christian, they thought, well, that's the end of it, isn't it? He, he hates Muslims now. He's betrayed his family. He's going to do what Christians do, things like going out and getting drunk, um, sleeping around. Uh, he probably supports the state of Israel. And I don't know, his politics are probably like those of George W. Bush. And you, you you hear that and you think, what on earth are you talking about? That's not what Christian means. But for them, there are 1.7 billion Muslims in the world. For many of them, those are exactly the kinds of things Christian means. One of my other friends from Pakistan, he said, when he grew up, grew up Muslim in Pakistan, said. There are Christians there. They're a minority, very persecuted minority. He said, we were taught growing up that in the churches, they would meet at night and have a gathering and they'd all drink wine, okay, and get drunk and then the priests would interfere with all the women. And you think, what are you talking about? But this is the, these kinds of things are generationally embedded in people. And they don't change like that. And so someone like my young Saudi friend, he might say, well, you know what, I'm not going to use the word Christian to describe myself. (laughs) Um, I'm going to talk about myself as a follower of the Lord Jesus or Jesus the Messiah. The word Christian is barely biblical. It only occurs three times in the New Testament. It's a great title. I love it. But you can understand why someone wouldn't necessarily want to use that label for themselves. What's more important than the label is are they really following the Lord Jesus as Lord and as their Saviour? Again, it requires slightly different thinking, flexible thinking. All right, come to the end of the passage. Verse 27. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and through the spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. They did this, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. This strange thing happens at the end of this passage. This prophet comes. Agabus gives two prophecies in Acts, both of which come true. This is the first one. The second one is to the Apostle Paul, and he completely ignores it, which is fascinating. The, the focus isn't really on, wow, there's this prophet who predicts the future. The focus in this text is actually on the response, the result of the prophecy, which is that the new believers in Antioch, who are mostly Gentile, collect money to support their older brothers and sisters in Jerusalem, who many of whom have been following Jesus since he was walking around on earth. They have a new fellowship. Their new reputation as believers is not just a reputation to outsiders. Actually, they have a new fellowship with their older brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. And so they're actually willing to sacrifice for them and give money in order to support them in the name of the fellowship in Christ Jesus. We've really experienced that in our fellowship with people from Muslim background, from all these different countries. Some of them I struggle to communicate with because there isn't a common language that we're both good at. Um, But we have deep relationship with these people. It's wonderful. Um, And as I said before, carry one another's burdens, celebrate with one another. This week I was at two Year 12 graduations on two different days for people who've come on this journey and have had very difficult lives um, but for one of them a man and for another the daughter of a woman in our fellowship and the daughters also in our fellowship both of them have um, been brought by god through their high school years and are in faith in christ jesus uh, so it's, it's wonderful to be in fellowship with them and be able to rejoice with them in those moments the fellowship that we have with them is not because we're like them Um, or because we have the same language or the same preferences or hobbies or live in the same neighbourhood. It's fellowship that's in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that goes much deeper, doesn't it? My prayer, having thought about these things um, and having read this again this morning with you, is that I and that we, as Christian people, won't just stick to what we're used to, um, won't just think about the ministry of the gospel in ways that perhaps we're comfortable with or that are familiar to us but that we will be willing to think differently for the sake of the gospel and recognise when God's doing something by his grace that's not what we're used to and that might be a bit challenging um, to us. I pray that we will recognise that when it happens and embrace it and lean into it and... (laughs) also that we will enjoy the fruit of that in fellowship with people who are like us in some ways and also people who aren't like us. We've seen that in our ministry and I'm very thankful to the Lord for it and I want more and more of it so that on the last day when we are gathered around the throne of Christ, um, we will appreciate even more deeply all of the diversity of human beings who are found there worshipping together our Heavenly Father in Christ Jesus. Let me pray. Almighty God, we praise you that you are at work among the nations in fulfilment of prophecy. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that we are beneficiaries of the spread of the gospel through the world. We thank you that it's come as far as Australia. We thank you, Lord God, that it's circling the world over and over again, reaching people who haven't yet heard. We ask, Father, for your mercy on Muslim people around the world, including here in Australia, that they would have an opportunity to hear the truth and repent and believe. We pray for you to raise up um, a great army of workers for the harvest who will be faithful and diligent and prayerful above all things. We pray for those who've come to faith in Jesus Christ from Muslim background. Please sustain them in faith in times of hopelessness or loneliness, in times of sin Um, and we pray, Father, that they would have strong relationships with their older brothers and sisters, perhaps like us, in faith in Christ. And we pray, Father, that there would be a great spread of the gospel here in Richmond and all over the world, that many more would come into your kingdom and be our brothers and sisters. And we pray, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.